Well, most of you didn't have the, uh, the joy of knowing my father before he went to be with the Lord, but he had a pretty unorthodox way of teaching me. Um, I, I'll never forget when I was about 12 years old riding in the cab of his pickup one morning. We were headed to go have breakfast or something, and I noticed on his dashboard this little round can it was, you know, about yay big, about as big as a hockey puck. And I never really knew what was in it, except that he'd open it up every once in a while and take something out of it and stick it in his lip. <laughs> and then occasionally he'd have this little Coke bottle and he'd spit in it. And I thought, well, that looks fun. I want to do that. So I said, Dad, I want to do that. He said, Sure. So he pulled over, opened up his can of Copenhagen, and proceeded to pull a very generous plug and pulled back my bottom lip and stuck it in you. And I, th- I said, what do I do now? <laughs> he said, you don't have to do anything. Just sit there. So I just sat there. I wasn't given a bottle to spit in or anything. Well, about 30 minutes later, we got to the store, wherever it was we were going. I made a beeline to the bathroom. Out came the plug and breakfast. (laughs) I never understood when Walt Garrison said, just a pinch or a pinch, he used to say, just a pinch between your cheek and gums, pure tobacco flavor. I didn't get that. I never got to that point. But I reflected on that day. It brought a few lessons to mind. Um, But here's here's the one. (laughs) There's a couple of lessons about my dad, but there's one. And that is that our Father may give us what we ask for, so be careful what you ask. You know what? God may say yes to your crazy request, to a request that has about the maturity of a 12-year-old asking for a plug of tobacco. The difference, of course, between our Heavenly Father and my father is that God warns us ahead of time (laughs) what's going to happen. You know that's going to make you really sick. Well, the Bible is replete with examples of God giving people what they asked for and it not going well. For example, the Hebrews grew weary of eating manna and they begged for meat. God said, all right, I'll give you meat. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh said, you know, we really don't want to settle in the promised land. We're fine to settle east of the Jordan River. God said, okay, I'll let you settle east of the Jordan River. Israel said, you know, we'd love to have a king just like all the other nations. God said, okay, I'll give you a king just like all the other nations. And in each case, the fallout of God saying yes was huge. It was huge. My father's goal that day in the truck succeeded, that is, to make me so sick of what I wanted that I would never want it again. And I haven't. (laughs) Scout's honor. 
Sometimes the Lord does the same with us. He'll give us what we want so that we will never want it again. Turn, if you would, with me to Mark chapter 14. I feel like we've been in Mark 14 for months. It's a long chapter, but we're going to finish it, Lord willing, today. And not too much longer, and we will finish Mark. We've only got a couple of chapters to go. I counted up the messages. We're like in the 20s now on this, this, uh, this gospel. What a great journey this has been to walk through Mark's wonderful account of the life and ministry of our Lord with the particular emphasis of being a servant. You know, when we ask God for something, it's really best to qualify our requests because even when we're asking, we don't always know what we're asking for. It's sort of like James and John a few chapters back when they said, Lord, let us sit one at your right, one at your left in your glory. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. It's always good to qualify our request to the Lord, like Jesus did. We saw last week as we worked our way, we're toward the end of the Passion Week now, and we saw where Jesus took his apostles into Gethsemane, and while he was there, he asked them to keep watch and to pray because he was distraught. And Jesus went a little ways from them, got down and began to pray to the Father. And he said, Lord, Father, this is my request, but not my will, but yours be done. Boy, what a great model of prayer. In the best way I can ask, Lord, this is what I think needs to happen. Would you please bring about this result? And most of the time, if not all of the time, our prayer request is remove the pain. Take away the bad. Take away what I don't like. But Jesus qualifies it in a wonderful way. Not my will, but yours be done. What God wants to give us is always better than what we want him to give us. Let me say that again, and I hope you really hear it. What God wants to give us is always better than what we want him to give us. We've seen as we've made our way through the Passion Week here, the last few chapters of Mark, and particularly as we got toward the end in the upper room the last couple of weeks, the prediction by Jesus of the betrayal by Judas, of the abandonment by all the apostles, and in particular, as we'll look today, the prediction of Peter denying Christ. So Mark 14, we're going to pick it up where we left off last time in verse 53. Mark 14, 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. So notice just a couple of details here. First of all, it says, after all the apostles deserted Jesus, everyone fled, back up in verse 50. They all left him and fled. And we're told in verse 54, Peter followed. So first Peter flees, then Peter follows. But notice, 
He follows at a distance. He's keeping himself safe. He's still fleeing, in a sense, but he's following at a distance, and he goes in, and he sits in the courtyard of the high priest, sits with the officers. If you have the New International Version, I think it says the guards. But the, he sits with the officers. And we aren't told why. Matthew tells us why. Matthew tells us that Peter sat there to see what the outcome would be. What's going to happen? Which is sort of ironic because Jesus has told Peter multiple times what's going to happen. Peter still hasn't connected the dots. Look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this, not even in this respect, was their testimony consistent. For a trial to be legal, several things had to happen. First of all, it had to be done in the temple, at least a religious trial, had to be done in the temple. It had to be during the day, and there had to be witnesses, at least two. They didn't have any of this. It wasn't in the temple. We're in the house of the high priest. It's at night, it's in the middle of the night, and witnesses, they're struggling to come up with some, and so they have to bring false witnesses to, the, to, the, uh, to this trial because they don't have any real witnesses. Uh, they don't have any credible witnesses. And notice they, they tell lies to justify a verdict that's already been made. Notice in verse 55, the council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to find out the truth. No, that's not what it says, to put him to death. They're looking for a way to kill him. This verdict was already a done deal. In fact, look at verse 1, all the way back at verse 1. The Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. So when it came time for the trial, the verdict was already there. They just needed a way to, an excuse to justify it. They were trying to find a way to justify what they had already determined that they were going to do. And they had already actually determined this back in chapter 3. We won't turn there, but if you look back in chapter 3, verse 6, that was sort of the tipping point where the religious leader said, you know what, we got to get rid of this guy. And that was more than a year before this moment. So for basically the whole last year, Jesus was a marked man. Mark says they were looking for a way to destroy him. The verdict was already certain. I don't know if you've discovered this. All you have to do is read the news, which is so discouraging sometimes. Sometimes it's good not to look at the news. But in this world before the kingdom of God, typically the ones with the power win. Right and wrong, mm, right's convenient if it happens to work out, but for the most part, the ones with the power win. 
And this is true not just in the government, where we would hope that it, there would be justice. It's not just true in personal relationships. It's not just true in the family, which is a hard one. But it's also true in the ministry. And when we look at this sense of um, the high priest here, these people, these religious leaders, who ought to be representatives of the Lord, they're not interested in what's right. They've already determined it. Jesus needs to die. The ones with the power win. Right and wrong don't make a difference. So they lie. In fact, we're told in these two verses twice they lie, and we're told twice that their words contradict each other. Look at verse 60 now. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Pause there a second. The high priest. The high priest is Caiaphas. Well, he isn't named here, but his name was Caiaphas. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you go to the Israel Museum, and go to the back of the Israel Museum, there's a little corner in the back that has up at the top Jesus of Nazareth. And there's several items there of archaeological um, curiosity that relate to the ministry to the life of Christ. And one of them is the ossuary of Caiaphas. An ossuary is a, is a bone box. It's, uh, you know, it's probably about as long as, as this uh, podium here, probably you know, 18, 20 inches high. And it held the bones of, uh, of people. That's, that's how when people were buried in the first century, typically that's how they were buried. They were put in a, in a tomb for a year while the flesh decayed. At the one-year anniversary of the person's death, they would go in, collect the bones, and put them in an ossuary that was made over the course of that year. And then that ossuary, which was the box that you put all the bones in, would be placed in the family tomb. And that's sort of what the saying goes when it says that you're gathered to your fathers. It means your bones are, are gathered right along with the father's bones. So you can walk in and you can see, you know, there's, there's granddad, there's great-granddad, there's great-great-granddad. It's all the way down the line of these stacks of ossuaries. Well, Caiaphas's ossuary was found, unmistakably. And so it, it's sort of surreal, I tell you, to stand there. I've stood there a number of times and looked at this box and know, you know, the bones that were in this box, uh, they did a DNA testing of the, of the dust, which was all that was left in there, and they uh, determined that it was from the, the, uh, a, late, a man in his late 50s or early 60s. Uh, so a male in his late 60s or early 50s. Anyway, it was a male, all right? How's that? <laughs> We're pretty sure Caiaphas was a male. But anyway, it's just amazing to, to, put that, to make that connection. Jesus stands before the high priest and the high priest is the one who's supposed to be the Lord's representative, the one who's supposed to go in before the very presence of God once a year on Yom Kippur and represent the people, is standing before the Messiah with his finger pointed in his face, making these accusations. Don't you hear what these men are saying against you? But Jesus doesn't answer a word. Let's keep looking here. Now verse 61. 
But he kept silent. Jesus kept silent and did not answer. And again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, look at this question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Man, what a question and what an answer. There's a couple of Proverbs in the book of Proverbs that I love, and it takes the wisdom of Solomon to know which one to apply. Here here, here are the Proverbs. It's Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5. Just listen, and I'll sort of paraphrase it. But Proverbs 26, verse 4 and 5 say, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And then the verse right after that says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So it's like, which is it? Do you answer the guy or do you not answer the guy? Yes, depending on the wisdom of the circumstance. And I love that because here Jesus applies both of those Proverbs. He doesn't answer the fools according to their folly when they give false testimony. He doesn't say a word. He tells them exactly what they deserve to hear. Nothing. But when the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? That's what, that's what he's asking when he says here, are you the Christ? Uh, are you the Messiah is literally what he's asking. The son of the blessed one. He doesn't say God because a Jew was not supposed to take not supposed to use God's name, or traditionally they, were not, they don't use God's name. So he doesn't use God's name in order to be pious, which is so ironic. Here he's, he's conducting this illegal trial, and he's trying to be pious by not using God's name. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God, is basically what he's asking. And Jesus' answer is marvelous. Jesus said, I am. It's amazing Some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Some people say that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Well, if if you want to see Jesus claim to be God, just read John chapter 10. Very clearly, he claimed to be God. And if you ever want to see Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, this is it. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. You know what? I looked at the Greek, and you know what the Greek says? I am. It's very easy to interpret. In fact, the way Jesus phrased it, in, or the way that Mark records Jesus' intent in saying it, uh, in Greek, I am could be written a number of different ways. But when it's written this particular way, it's, it emphasizes not just the answer, yes, I am, but the great I am is what Jesus is saying. It's a connection to the I am. When Jesus makes this, the statement in Greek, ego eimi, ego is the word I, and it's a powerful emphasis because it's so seldom needed to say. The, all Greek verbs have a subject implied, and so when you add the subject onto it, it's really for emphasis. And this particular one, when it's added on, I am, is a direct uh, uh, connection to Jesus basically claiming, I am Yahweh. It's a powerful connection. And he not only says yes, he says yes in such a way to say, I am, I am God's son, 
But then he takes it up a notch and he says, by the way, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He takes Psalm 110, which talks about the Messiah sitting at the right hand of God, and he takes Daniel chapter 7, which talks about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, which is a prediction, a prophecy of the coming kingdom of the Messiah. He takes and puts those two together. So not only does he tell Caiaphas, yes, I am the Christ, yes, I am the Son of God, but one day this situation that you're seeing right now is going to be reversed. One day you're going to see me as the one doing the judging. I didn't go over that well. Look at verse 63. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Caiaphas's words, what further need do we have of witnesses? In other words, before this, they really needed witnesses because they didn't have any. I mean, Jesus hadn't done anything wrong, and they, they were looking for a way to justify the verdict they'd already come up with. But now he says, ah, we got it. We don't need any more witnesses. We've got him right where we want him. You have heard the blasphemy. So Caiaphas flat out says, here's the verdict. He just blasphemed. And I read that and thought, all right, let's say just, for instance, Caiaphas, if Jesus was the Messiah, how would you have liked him to answer? If he was the Messiah, how, how could he say yes in a way that would be suitable to you? There was an, this was a no-win situation. Jesus knew it. He was not there, he knew, to be fairly judged. He knew that he was there to be condemned. The tearing of the clothes is a Jewish act that basically is a sign of mourning or grieving. It's used in a number of contexts, but for here, in this case, it's used to symbolize that Caiaphas had just heard blasphemy. And so for Caiaphas, first of all, to t the high priest, when the boss gives you a verdict, that's kind of the bottom line, isn't it? Who's going to stand up and say, wait, Caiaphas, I don't think that's blasphemy. I'm sorry you tore your clothes and all, but we need to back up a little bit. Let's talk about this a little more. Nobody's going to say that. If the high priest says, blasphemy, tear my clothes, what do you think? There's only one answer to what you think, and they all gave it. Here's the, here's the official verdict. He's worthy of death. They condemned, him, they condemned him worthy of death, and then they proceeded to humiliate him. They spit on him. When's the last time somebody spit on you? It's probably all the way back when you were a kid, right? After you spit on your brother or sister. And they blindfolded him and beat him. So he doesn't see it coming. He's blindfolded and they punch him. And then they mock him. When they say prophesy, they're basically saying, hey, you're a prophet? Who hit you? Tell us who hit you. Prophesy. They're mocking him. 
And notice it says the officers received him with slaps in the face. The officers. When's the last time we heard the word officers? With Peter. Remember that? Look back at verse 54. The officers received him. So they sent Jesus now to the officers. The officers are receiving Jesus, and they receive Jesus with slaps in the face. Who is sitting by the officers? Peter. Peter. And Peter's there to see the outcome. Well, he sees it. He sees the outcome. It shouldn't have surprised him, though, because Jesus had told him what the outcome would be. Now, put your good Baptist fingers on, and let's look at some cross-references here. Look back at chapter 8, verse 31. Let's just trace a theme. We've seen it all throughout the series here, but let's, let's don't miss. Because remember, Mark is not, wasn't written to us just to be read over the course of a year of bite-sized chunks in, on Sunday morning. But the idea is you're going to read it and you're going to understand the whole flow altogether. And so sometimes we have to go back and make sure that we do that. So Mark chapter 8, look at verse 31. This is the first time that Jesus mentions his death. It says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's 831. Look at 931. Real convenient to have the editors make this simple for us. 831, 931. Jesus tells him now for the second time. It says, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. All right, you'd think 1031, but it's not. It's 1033. Look at 1033. This is the third time now. Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. See that word, those words? He, they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, kill him, and three days later he will rise again. So Jesus multiple times is telling them, this is how it's going to go. And I'm going to rise again. So it's not just bad news, but it's good news as well. Okay, let's keep reading. Look in now in chapter 14, where we've just come from. But let's look back at a couple of verses there in chapter 14. Verse 27. Chapter 14, 27. Jesus said to them, this is right after the Last Supper, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised... I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And then Peter, uh, Jesus proceeds to tell Peter that he will deny him before the rooster crows. So Peter is sitting there. Peter sees what happens. Peter sees Christ condemned. 
He sees Christ being received by the officers with slaps in the face. So what do you think is the inevitable outcome now? How is Peter going to respond? Remember how all the disciples responded each of those times Jesus brought up the cross? Each of those, those contexts that we just read, 831, 931, 1033, and even in the upper room, every single time Jesus brings up the cross, the disciples go, no, they reject it. And they reject it because they don't want any part of it. Well, now we have the same thing again, the exact same thing. Except now it's not a prediction, it's about to happen. Look at verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you were talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. When it says that Peter began to curse in verse 71, you may have a marginal reading, as I do in the New American Standard, that says he put himself under a curse. That might be a little bit better translation because it wasn't just Peter reaching back into his fisherman background and, and, and cussing. He didn't mean, it doesn't mean that. It means he is cursing himself, cursing in the sense of damning himself. Paul uses a very similar word in Galatians where he says, where he says that somebody, um, what does he say? Galatians, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one I've preached, let him be accursed. It's the same word. So G Jesus, uh, Peter is putting himself under a curse. Basically, let me be damned if what I'm telling you isn't right. Wow. Can you imagine? In, in today's terms, we would say, let me go to hell if what I'm telling you isn't right. I have no idea who this man is. Does that kind of put it in terms that are a little bit easier to swallow or harder to swallow? Peter didn't just cuss. He is putting a curse on himself. He's doing everything he can, taking his words to the limit to say, I don't know him, and please don't hurt me, basically is what he's doing. He's protecting himself, which is exactly what happened in 831, 931, 1033, and, uh, and now. Whenever the cross comes up, it's rejected, and Peter clearly rejects it here. And then we're told the rooster crows. A second time. For whatever reason, the first time the rooster crows, Peter didn't make the connection. 
But after the rooster crows the second time, just as Jesus predicted, it clicks. And Peter remembers that Jesus predicted, you're going to deny me. And Peter remembers also that he had told him he never would deny him. But he did. And as a result, we're told Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. John's gospel told us, tells us also that at this moment, that wherever they were in this situation, Jesus turns and looks at Peter, and their eyes meet. Can you imagine? The look that Jesus gave him, and the look that Peter must have given in return. He runs out and he weeps. The other Gospels say that he weeps bitterly. Bitterly. He went out and began to weep. Think about the years that Jesus and Peter spent together. Imagine the experiences that they've had together. The messages Peter heard. The miracles Peter saw. The miracles Peter performed. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. The everyday mundane things of eating, washing, joking, laughing, crying, being sick, just the day in and day out of living with somebody, all the little things and all the great things. Peter, for the last three and a half years, has experienced those with Jesus. And not to mention Peter's wonderful, great confession up at Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus asked his men, who do the people say that I am? Peter's the one that steps up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's the very question that Caiaphas had just asked Jesus. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Peter made that confession. And then now you have Peter saying, Cesar Philippi, you're the Christ, and now in Jerusalem, I don't know the man. Wow, what a contrast. And Peter feels the burden of that, of that contradiction. Now think ahead with me. You know, this is the end of Mark chapter 14. We could close, we could close the Bible and move on and, and pray and be done. But think about this. Again, Mark didn't write this for us to just read bit by bit by bit. He, he wrote this for us to read the whole thing and to understand the whole thing as one message. So we're doing ourselves a huge disservice to just stop it here. So let's cheat a little bit and read ahead. Let's cheat a little bit and read ahead. Turn to chapter 16. And just camp out there for a moment. Jesus dies on a Friday. He's raised on Easter Sunday. That means for the rest of Friday, all of Saturday, and the little bit of Sunday morning before the good news came, Peter is left with his conscience, especially Saturday. Can you imagine Saturday? Jesus has died on Friday, and the last interaction you had with the Christ that you just spent the last three and a half years with is him looking you right in the eye after you've betrayed him. That's it. That's the last memory you have. And he's killed. And he's buried. And you're thinking, that's it. I denied him. It is over. I am out. I just got voted off the island. It's done. And I'm so sorry, but I have no way to tell him. He's dead. I have no way to tell him. I really didn't mean that. 
Or actually, I really did mean it, and I just, I'm sorry. Peter had no way to make it right. And here's the crazy thing. Because I don't know, we've probably all seen somebody dead. Whether it's a loved one or a friend or whatever. But if you've ever seen a body that's dead, I mean, it's dead. There's no life in it. You can look at a body and you just realize, you know, nobody is there. It's, it, it, there's such this, the, the, there's this haunting finality to it. You think it's over. If I wanted to tell that person something, there is nothing I could say from this point on. That's how Peter felt. And here's the crazy thing. Roosters don't observe the Sabbath. Peter would have awakened on Saturday morning to the same raucous crowing that he heard. And to realize, for the rest of my life, I've got to listen to that stupid rooster. As a reminder of my failure. Every single day. Can you imagine the anticipation of looking forward to that? Well, chapter 16, look at verse 4. Mark 16, look at verse 4. Jesus has died. Jesus has been buried. Now look at verse 4. And you can glance. The the women are coming to the tomb saying, uh, who's going to roll the stone away? You're familiar with the context, but look at the details. Verse 4, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples. Now look at those two words. And Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go tell Peter. Tell his disciples. And don't leave Peter out. And tell, what, what, what's the message? What, what are you supposed to say? He has risen, just as he said, and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. P- Peter, don't miss that trip to Galilee. You're going to want to go. Peter gets a special message from the Lord. Okay, that's wonderful, but it gets even better. Keep your Baptist fingers. Look at Luke chapter 22. I'm uh, sorry, 24. Luke 24, verse 33. Again, it's after Jesus has risen. He meets a couple of people on the road to Emmaus, reveals himself to them. They hustle back to Jerusalem. And they find the people gathered together. Look at Luke 24, verse 33. They got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. That's Peter. The Lord has arisen and has appeared to Peter. This is a private meeting between Jesus and Peter. All right, keep your 
you don't have to keep your finger there, just keep moving, I should say. And look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. The Apostle Paul is basically giving the gospel and couching it in history because the gospel story is truth. 1 Corinthians 15, verse, starting verse 3, Paul writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the Twelve. Peter was not left to wallow in his shame. God, in his great mercy, chose to have a special meeting with Peter, even a special meeting with Peter before the rest of the apostles. Think about that. Think about that. And what I love about this is that this meeting that Jesus had, the resurrected Jesus had with Peter, we aren't told anything about it. Luke just says that it happened. Paul just says it happened. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The Holy Spirit finds it appropriate to draw a veil around that, that conversation that Peter and Jesus had. And we're left in our imagination to wonder what they talked about. But we know the outcome of that conversation that Jesus expressed somehow that Peter is forgiven because Peter made the trip to Galilee. Now let's quickly look at that. John chapter 21. And this is where we'll stop. John 21. You're familiar with the context. Jesus has already risen from the dead and he sent his disciples up in Galilee. Why Galilee? Why send them all the way back up there? I mean, he's already appeared a number of times in Jerusalem after his resurrection. Why take them back to Galilee? Well, you know the story that they go out, the disciples go out. Peter says, I'm going fishing. They go out. They don't catch any fish. They see a lone figure on the shore, and this lone figure says, hey, cast your net on the other side of the boat, and you'll, you'll catch, a, catch some fish. And they do it. What do you know? A miraculous catch. A miraculous catch. John, the sharp guy that he is, says, it's the Lord. And Peter, who had been stripped for work, I love this, puts clothes on to jump in the water and thrashes the hundred yards to the shoreline. If you go to, to the Sea of Galilee today, you'll find a church there called the Primacy of Peter, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee by a little place called Tavga, traditionally where this conversation took place. Why go to Galilee? Well, look at these next few verses. Verse 15. John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time. Notice that word, the, the third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. The third time. Why did Jesus ask Peter three times, do you love me? Clearly, especially when we're told the third time, because Peter had denied Jesus three times. Do you love me more than these? Why did he say that? Because Peter had boasted, if all of these forsake you, I won't. Do you really love me more than all of these? You know that I love you, Lord. You know all things. And then each time, notice it, Jesus doesn't say, um, you blew it, I'm done with you. Instead, he says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Three times he's told, I'm not done with you. And then Jesus goes on to basically tell him how Peter is going to die. And Peter, <laughs> verse 20, says, how's John going to die? Tell me, Lord. Isn't that great? Good old Peter. What about this man? Verse 21. And verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. I love John 21 because John 21 ties, it tells us where to go when we hear our roosters. You hear roosters? Yes, you do. You hear a rooster every time there's a flashback in your mind of that, that, that sin that you committed that you wish you never had. You hear roosters every time you think about how you blew it and there is nothing you can do and go back and change it. Satan is all about roosters to give you a reminder of your failure. But you know what the rooster became for, Jesus, for Peter after John 21? After the great uh, connection that Jesus and Peter had and those, that unexplained uh, appearance that Jesus had with Peter, roosters became a witness of grace. Begin to think about that for the roosters in your life. When you're reminded of your failure, and I mean the big failures, the failures that you are so ashamed of, like Peter was, don't listen to the rooster that comes from the pit of hell that tells you you're condemned, you're no good, you're worthless, God's done with you, look at what you did. Instead, think about the shore of the Sea of Galilee as the grace of our Savior looked into the face of, of Peter and said, I'm not done with you, Peter. Brought you back up here to Galilee where we started, basically to say, let's start again. You follow me. I'm not done with you. And the good news is, my friend, God's not done with you, no matter what you've done. If you're still breathing, and most of you are, He's not done with you. You'll know when God's done with you. You know how? You'll see his face. Until then, you follow him. And don't listen to those roosters that give you the shame. Listen to the rooster that herald the grace of God in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for including Peter's story in the scriptures. We need to read Peter's story. We need to see this man who was so self-confident, who had a genuine but immature 
self-seeking love for Jesus Christ, because that's often where we struggle. Help us, Lord, as we, after we've denied our Savior in whatever ways, whatever ways we can look back and the rooster attempts to remind us of our failure, instead help us to remember the risen Jesus Christ died for all of our sins, none accepted, and by faith in him our sins are completely forgiven. And we pray for any who are here today that might be like Caiaphas, pointing to his finger in Jesus' face, that already have their mind made up about Christ before there's ever an opportunity. Would you open their hearts to receive the forgiveness that is theirs through the one who gave his life for them? And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.